Hey, everybody. Welcome back. It's the Bitterness and Rage Show, episode number two. I want to thank you all for listening to the last podcast and say, glad you came back. Glad you're still listening. Hey, it's Saturday night. What are you doing? I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'm sitting here and hopefully not talking to myself. So why don't we both agree that it's a sad, depressing way to spend a Saturday night, and let's hang out together, shall we? So you want to hear something funny? That is the sound of crumpling paper. I had a whole show planned out for you, all these different things, but who are we kidding? It's all Donald Sterling all the time. All right, maybe not. But it's going to be a lot of Donald Sterling. Let me remind you, too, that if you like what you hear or don't like what you hear or just can't get enough communicating with me, I'm Rob, by the way, captain of the Bitterness and Rage show. It's at Bitter and Rage on your Twitter machines, at Bitter and Rage. So tweet me with your comments, your complaints, your hopes, your fears, your criticisms, your dreams, whatever else you want to talk about. And again, let's make this show our show, because I'd love to talk about some of the things that you want to talk about, questions, etc. So here's what I want to talk about today, if we can. I want to talk about the NFL schedule that was released a couple weeks ago. Jameis Winston, uh, this Saturday morning massacre in the Washington Capitals, and I'll explain what I mean by the Washington morning, or excuse me, the Saturday morning massacre. Yeah, that's right. You get the professionalism of mistakes and how I self-deprecate them. And, of course, I want to talk the hypocrisy of outrage involving Donald Sterling and the lingering impact of the Penn State scandal, a pretty dark point in my life and the lives of other Penn State graduates. Uh, just a little update from the last show. If you listened to the last show, you remember that I tried to defend the job that Mike Woodson did, and I guess that's why I quit my day job practicing law. Mike Woodson was fired the day after, and I, I blame myself, of course. Also, Alden Smith did have his option picked up by the San Francisco 49ers. So there's a little update as to what happened from the last show. All right, let's kick off things with uh, Donald Sterling. And let me begin by saying I want to tread very, very lightly on this issue. I do not want to end up on the wrong side of history and society, and I, lest anyone think that I'm taking the side of my good friend Donald Tolkowitz, otherwise known as Donald Sterling. Um, but I did want to talk about, as I've had a week or so, it's been about a week since this whole thing erupted, a week or so to absorb this and gather my own thoughts and I came up with this whole notion of the hypocrisy of outrage that it's very easy to get angry without really thinking about it because the person next to you might be getting angry but I digress just in case you've been on Mars for the last week and don't know who Donald Sterling is or hypocrisy or outrage the at this point still owner of the NBA's Los Angeles Clippers uh, while being recorded by his, I'll charitably call her his girlfriend, V. Stiviano. She recorded a conversation between the two of them in which he made some incredibly inappropriate, to be kind, uh, disgusting, racially charged comments. And in a moment, I'm going to do a little theatrical reading of those comments. Uh, let me just first say that, have you seen video lately of V. Stiviano and that hat with the oversized Daft Punk-like visor she seems to be wearing in public? Let me just say to you, my friend, if you were going to drag a highly public figure 
out of the closet of racism and do it primarily for profit. Uh, I believe Donald Sterling said that he should have paid her. That was his first response, I believe, to this whole situation since it broke. If you're going to bring somebody out there and put yourself in the public eye, you can't then walk around acting as though somehow you're put out or offended by all the attention. Don't bring attention on yourself and then complain about the, that attention. So I have here some of the comments that were made, and I figure I could read them like a radio host with my deep, jazzy voice. Up oh, the music's dry again. But I instead want to do a dramatic, theatrical interpretation of how I believe the conversation went. Um, and of course, I let me just start out by saying that this is not supposed to be an impression. This is not at all how they sound, but in my sick little world, this is how they would sound if they were performing this live for us. So the first person that is going to speak, and again, this is the recorded conversation, Twixt, uh, Donald Tolkowicz, and V. Stiviano. And so the first voice you're going to hear is the girlfriend. And I say that, and for all those watching on TV right now, I'm holding up my fingers, air quotes, the girlfriend of Mr. Tolkowicz. I don't understand. I don't see your views. I wasn't raised the way you were raised. Uh, well then, if you don't feel, uh, don't come to my games. Don't bring black people and don't come. That was Donald Sterling, by the way. Do you know that you have a whole team that's black that plays for you? You just do I know. I support them and give them food and clothes and cars and houses. Who gives it to them? Does someone else give it to them? Do I know that I have? Who makes the game? I make the game. Or do they make the game? Is there 30 owners that created the league? And then it continues. Honey, if it makes you happy, I'll remove all the black people from my Instagram. Oh, uh, you said that before. You said I understand. I did remove the people that were independently on my Instagram that are black. Then why did you start saying that you didn't? You just said you didn't remove them. You didn't remove every... I didn't remove Matt Kemp and Magic Johnson, but I thought, why? I thought Matt Kemp is mixed and he was okay, just like me. Okay. He's lighter and whiter than me. Okay. I met his mother. Do you think I'm a racist and wouldn't? I don't think you're a racist. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. I think you, you evil heart. It's the world. You go to Israel. The blacks are treated just like dogs. So do you have to treat them like that too? The white Jews, there's white Jews and black Jews. Do you understand? And there are black Jews less than the white Jews? A hundred... It's a 50%, 50-100%. That was the exact quote, by the way. Is that right? It isn't a question. We don't evaluate what's right and wrong. We live in a society. We live in a culture. We have to live within that culture. But shouldn't we take a stand for what's wrong and be the change and the difference? I don't want to change the culture because I can't. It's too big and too unknown. But you can change yourself. I don't want to change. If, I, if my girl can't do what I want, I don't want that girl. I'll find a girl that will do what I want. Believe me, I thought you were that girl because I tried to get you what you want, but you're not that girl. And then goes on to say a bunch of other things that are pretty bad, including not wanting her to bring black people to the games and not wanting her to be seen publicly with black people. So let's, again, let me open up by saying this is not going to be condoning or defending old Donnie Tolkowicz. Um... In response to what Sterling said, I guess I'll call him by this more familiar name, the NBA uh, fined him $2.5 million and banned him for life. 
And as we speak, they're currently cooking up a way to get all 29 other NBA owners to vote to have him sell the team, which apparently, according to NBA bylaws, they are certainly within their right to do. So we are outraged. Most people, I don't know anybody that isn't outraged by what he said. Um, but generally speaking, we are outraged when it's convenient to do so. And I'm going to get further into that as we look at uh what Sterling did and what the NBA did and the fact that it's comments versus action so on and so forth. But there are many angles to this and I want to examine three of them. So the first is the actions of Donald Sterling. Now look, the, these are comments that were made in private. It's unclear whether or not he actually knew that he was being recorded. Well, let me go back just for a second too. That For a long time after this broke, there were no comments from either side. Since then, as of yesterday, uh, Sterling said uh, in an interview with DuJour magazine that he, quote, should have paid her off. So that raises some question issue about what's happening here. And I'm going to address that with the last angle, my conspiracy angle about all of this. And Stiviano said in an interview with Barbara Walters that I don't think he's a racist, which would make her one of the two people on this planet that don't think he's a racist, the first, of course, being Donald Sterling. So if you look at the comments that he made, which are terrible, but they were comments, and this is not the first time that he's either spoken or acted in a way that's consistent with racism. So let me just read to you a little laundry list, if I could, of the greatest hits of our good friend Donald Sterling. So the first, and this is in no particular order, is he, well, let's see, what's a good one to start with here? Raleigh Massimino, the former coach of the Villanova Wildcats, 1985 NCAA champions, uh, it was in 1983 interviewing for a job with Sterling to coach the Clippers. Donald Sterling, by the way, was the longest tenured owner in the NBA, having owned the Clippers since 1981. In the interview, Sterling asked Raleigh Massimino if, quote, do you think you could ever coach? Or why, excuse me, the quote was, I want to know why you think you can coach these and then the evil n-word that we don't use to which Massimino after the interview said I'd never work for that son of a five-letter word that rhymes with snitch ever so at least probably Massimino had the good sense not to work with him so there's one Elgin Baylor Hall of Fame NBA player former general manager of the Clippers for over 20 years and to be fair oversaw some really, really bad basketball teams, made some really bad basketball decisions. But he was fired. And he brought a lawsuit against Sterling in which he said that Sterling told him that he wanted a team of poor black boys from the South playing for a white coach, like a southern plantation-type structure. Now, even though Baylor later dropped race from the lawsuit and the jury found in favor of Sterling... Here we have some age discrimination was also in the suit and some race discrimination. Sterling is a man that brought his girlfriends into the Clippers locker room to watch his black players showering. 
He had the Clippers in 2011 celebrate Black History Month in March. Black History Month is in February. The biggest thing he did before this little incident broke is the man is, he made his fortune selling real estate and he owns some real estate in near Beverly Hills. Uh, and it's across the street from a place called an area of California, Los Angeles called Koreatown. And he didn't want in his apartment building when he realized that Koreatown was starting to boom. And he ends up paying millions of dollars to the Justice Department for this. So this is a well-documented offense that he did. When he finds out that he can get some more tenants, some higher-paying tenants from Koreatown, he had a building in which he locked out, and I mean locked out. These people came home, found their doors locked and guards guarding the doors. And they also found banners on the apartment building in Korean to try to lure the Koreatown tenants. But he didn't want blacks or Hispanics or uh, unwed mothers living in his apartment building because he felt it'd be bad for business. It would not attract the clientele that he wanted from the Koreatown buildings or the Koreatown neighborhood across the street. And he ended up paying the Justice Department several million dollars from that for fair housing discrimination acts violations. Finally, the two th in 2009, the L.A. chapter of the NAACP uh, gave him a Lifetime Achievement Award. And at the time, when he accepted his award, or not when he accepted his award, but when he was there to accept the award, he said to one of the reporters there, why are they giving this to me? And I'm paraphrasing that a direct quote. Why are they giving this to me? Okay. So of all the things he has done, and again, not trying to excuse the man, but it's the least, I don't want to say the least offensive, but it should be the least surprising. Many people knew about this. Certainly all 29 NBA owners knew about this. David Stern, current commissioner, Adam Silver knew about this. So is now the time really to act surprised about all of this? Is now the time to be outraged? Where was all this outrage before? Where was the movement by Stern and the other owners, Stern first, now Silver, to get rid of this guy? I mean, let's face it. He brought money to the table. He took a team that was, I think he paid 14 or $15 million for, and now he can get north of half a billion dollars for it. So he's making himself money, and he's making the NBA money. I want to point out and put in the hypocrisy of outrage spotlight Doc Rivers. Now look, I like Doc Rivers as a coach, as a person. I think he's one of the NBA's best. He was a good player. He's a better coach. Yes, he kind of left to the Boston Celtics when uh, they were going up in flames, when he saw the ship was sinking, but I'm not here to discuss that. You, know, you make business choices. You want to do what's best for your career. Who am I to say that's right or wrong? But you work for him, you were a free agent coach, you weren't traded, you decided with your own free will, okay, to go to work for this man. You knew what a horrible man he was, you played for him. You've been around the NBA for a long time, so you can't take his money and then act as though you've been irrevocably harmed and wronged by these actions. I like you, Doc, I think you're one of the best, but now is not the time to express this kind of outrage. The time to express the outrage would have been when 
Sterling said, I want to offer you the job as head coach and vice president of operations. I believe that's his title. And then say to him, thank you. No, you're a racist jerk. I don't mind playing your team, playing against your team. I don't have anything against the players in your team, but I can't work for a man like you. So we all need to dial back the outrage because we knew the character of this man for years and years and nobody said anything. The other owners can't now get up from the same table where they pushed all their chips to the center, all their Donald Sterling chips, and act upset and betrayed. I mean, folks, if a friend of yours was a racist, someone you did business with, someone you associated with, someone who made you happy professionally and personally, you knew they were a racist, but you were still friends. Then one day it is made public that he or she is a racist. Maybe unwittingly or wittingly, it's made public this person, this friend of yours, this coworker, somebody close was a racist. Would you break ties with this person? And if so, if you would break ties with this person, you have to ask yourself, is it your own personal code of ethics or is it just guilt? It's the hypocrisy of outrage. It's very easy to condemn people and jump on a bandwagon. Today we are outraged. In a month, who knows what's going to catch our eye? Will we still be outraged a month, six months from now? What happened was a terrible, terrible thing. But sometimes I believe we gauge our reactions or we look at our reactions through the lens of other people's reactions because it seems right. And I think Donald Sterling should be punished to the fullest extent of the law, both the NBA's law and our own constitution. But the kind of outrage we show, that's usually reserved for when it's something that drops on us like a, like a bomb, like an anvil out of the sky in one of those old Warner Brothers cartoons. Not when it's something we've known forever and then all of a sudden it's exposed. Speaking of exposure, and no, I'm not going to expose myself, there is one other story that I wish to bring to your attention that comes into this whole hypocrisy of outrage issue. Uh, Josh Olin, who is, works for Turtle Rock Studios, it's a gaming studio. They recently made the video game Evolve. He put out a tweet. He's the, I think he's the community relations manager for Turtle Rock Studios. He put out a tweet in which he said, and... Let me go get you the exact quote. Hold on. He says, Here's an unpopular opinion. Donald Sterling has the right as an American to be an old bigot in the security of his own home. He's a victim. Now, that he's a victim part is certainly stretching the term victim. But he gave an opinion that said you have a right to be a racist, which is, I guess, true. But... As I said, he was since been removed from his position by Turtle Rock Studios. And again, you have to ask yourself, is this what it's come to? And you say you have the right to say what you will in private, and you get fired for that. So the fallout from this could be long-standing, but you have to ask yourself when you do these things and when you judge. Outrage? Well-placed? Hypocritical? Or is it just guilt? Or is it really how you feel? So, let's look at those comments. They were made in private. This does not excuse the, the content of that conversation. But certainly, we have to think about... We say a lot of things in anger and in private that we later regret. I'm not saying we all say racist comments in private um, or in public. But we're really looking at a situation here where a man isn't punished for his private thoughts and his words, which I, I realize those private thoughts and words were made more public or were made public. 
So does the NBA really have the right to take away property for things that were said? The Constitution, if I believe I'm reading the Constitution correctly, says that we have the right of free speech in this country. And it further says that you can't take away somebody's property without due process. The Constitution is still the law, even in the NBA. So I'm not, I'm not excusing the comments, but did the NBA go too far? Should they try to force him to sell because of the private comments he made, which, yes, were brought to light, but how a man feels, even if that's when he's sitting at a board meeting with all the other owners and with Adam Silver and he's thinking to himself, I hate black people, and he's thinking that to himself, those are his private thoughts. Has it injured the NBA any? Before that, I mean, before all this happens. Of course, now the NBA has been a little tarnished, and I, I, I applaud Commissioner Silver for backing away as fast as possible to save financial face with the financial side of the NBA, with the sponsors and fans that come to the games. But did they go too far? I mean, look what happened with Riley Cooper. Different sport, I realize. Riley Cooper, wide receiver for the Philadelphia Eagles, at a concert while under the influence of a few uh, age-appropriate adult beverages, said something negative about fighting, and then he used the N-word that we shan't say on these airwaves. And he made these comments publicly. He meant for them to be heard. There were thousands of people around. He knew he was being recorded. And yes, he was punished. And I won't even talk about the punishment of going back and facing your black teammates when you're white and you've said something not just racist, but violently racist. He's punished, but he's kept in the league. And I'm not going to judge the punishment, okay? The swiftness of the punishment or the severity of the punishment. But what happens going forward in the NBA if a player, black or white, makes public, private, racist comments? Will that person be thrown out of the league? And what if it's a prominent NBA player, black or white? What happens to them? What do we do? Whether they know or not, they're, they're making their comments public. What do we do? What happens then? Just remember, and then we'll move on to the lighter side of what's happened here. When you eavesdrop on private conversations or read someone's diary or otherwise invade their privacy, you can't complain about what you find. You kind of take what you get there. So when you overhear somebody saying something that wasn't meant for you and is their own thoughts meant to stay in private, you really can't, or can you, complain about those things you discover, those things you unwrap. Okay, let's have some fun with this whole, this whole story, shall we? This whole uh, incident, and now I'm going to put on my Area 51 conspiracy hat, this whole incident smells just a little bit fishy for my taste. So you ask yourself, was Sterling set up to take the fall to pave the way for a new owner, a new popular owner, and a popular face of the National Basketball Association, say our good friend Irvin Magic Johnson? Let's walk through the torrid romance between Donnie Tolkowicz and V. Stiviano. V. Stiviano and Sterling met in 2010 at the Super Bowl. They had an affair. They affair. Uh, they had a business arrangement uh, in which Sterling gives her money and real property and expensive cars. Uh, not his first paramour. Apparently, this is something he likes to do. Uh, and now, 
Rochelle Sterling, who of all the people in this affair comes out looking like one of the bigger victims, Rochelle Sterling, his wife, filed a lawsuit on March 7th of this year, my mother's birthday. Happy birthday to my mom. That's one way to celebrate a birthday, I suppose. Filed a lawsuit, and I have in my hand the lawsuit that was filed in the Superior Court of the State of California for the County of Los Angeles. Rochelle Sterling, married woman, seeking to recover and protect community property. In the state of California, when you're a married couple or living as a married couple, you have community property. That means whatever you own, you both own in the eyes of the law, even if one person paid for it and the other didn't. So in the eyes of the law, you can't dispose of that property. You cannot give that property away without the consent of the other. So here's the lawsuit. Rochelle H. Sterling is a married woman seeking to protect and recover community property in her individual capacity, plaintiff, versus, and you got to love a woman or anybody that has multiple aliases. So versus V. Stiviano, a.k.a. Vanessa Maria Perez, a.k.a. Monica Gallegos, a.k.a. Monica Maria Perez Gallegos, a.k.a. Maria Valdez. So she's suing like a thousand people here, all of whom are the same woman but it's again great when someone has so many aliases so some of the things here's if you'd like to see the laundry list or hear the laundry list of what it was that sterling gave to his newest bestest buddy v stiviano let's see uh two hundred forty thousand dollars for upkeep and living expenses wow upkeep and living expenses two hundred forty thousand dollars i can do it for a lot cheaper donnie if, you know, you're into that kind of thing. Not that I am, but I am into the money. Uh, and, I, you know, it just makes better financial sense. Let's see. Uh, a 2012 Ferrari automobile, two Bentley automobiles, and a 2013 Range Rover. The total value is the automobiles are believed to exceed $500,000. It's a lot of cars. A lot of nice cars. It's, hey, listen. Kids out there thinking about going to college, what am I going to do with my future? Perhaps as a paramour. Maybe not in the state of California. But maybe that's the way you want to go here. Uh, also, Sterling gave $1.8 million of what's called community funds. So $1.8 million of his money that Rochelle believes she's entitled to. So Stiviano could acquire an apartment complex in Los Angeles. Hey, man, whatever floats it, I guess. Here is a wonderful birthday present, Christmas present, Hanukkah present, whatever it may be. I, I bought you an apartment building. So you can be a slumlord just like me. So to get back at uh, Sterling, at the Sterlings, I suppose, Stiviano recorded Sterling to catch him in the act of being a racist. So you're his paramour. He gives you money and cars and property. Then the wife is suing you to get some of that back. And now you're recording Donald Sterling to punish him. You don't want to punish Rochelle Sterling. You want to punish Donald Sterling. So one of the things that truly upset Sterling, one of the things Stiviano did that she knew would get Sterling's goat, was putting her picture on Instagram with Magic Johnson. Now, who has been angling for years to buy an NBA team? Why, Magic Johnson, of course. Who was one of the icons of the NBA? Magic Johnson. Who would love to own a Los Angeles team? Currently, by the way, one of the owners of the Los Angeles Dodgers of Major League Baseball. Who would love to own a Los Angeles team and will settle for the Clippers if it cannot be his beloved Lakers? Say it with me, boys and girls. Magic Johnson. 
The NBA and its owners would vomit all over themselves if, for Magic to become an owner. He is an NBA legend. A legend. And, in case you missed it, Magic Johnson, also a minority. I know that's not important to anyone out there, to the NBA, but I think they kind of like it in a lily-white field of NBA owners. So to have him own the Clippers, a rising potential championship team in a top-five media market, it would be like all of the wintertime seasonal transition solstice-celebrating holidays, to be politically correct, all at once, all gift-wrapped. So it's starting to become just a little too convenient. Maybe there was some cooking up of this little scheme. Magic Johnson in, Donald Sterling out, with Vif Stiviano in the middle of this mess. So the recording is released on Saturday the 26th. Magic Johnson on Monday the 28th of April. And so it's released on April 26th. On the 28th of April, Magic Johnson says he would like to buy the Clippers. And on Tuesday the 29th, Sterling is banned for life. And there was talk of getting the owners to vote to force him to sell. So in three days, we've wrapped this up. You know, we've just washed our hands of the whole thing. We've investigated it all. That's some swift justice, my friends. Swift justice. Seems to be too easy. Sterling out. Magic Johnson in. Well, that was all speculation, of course. It may not be a conspiracy, okay? But it sure is fun to speculate. And who says we can't have some fun with this whole Donald Sterling Michigas? Okay. Uh, next, I want to talk about something that's near and dear to my heart, and that is the Penn State scandal. Uh, this story, by the way, was brought to me by my good friend, Chris Morelli, who is the sports editor for the Center Daily Times newspaper in Pennsylvania. And if I got that title or the paper wrong, I apologize. I'll make up to it next time or make up for it next time. I, I look at Chris Morelli as a frequent contributor and a hopefully soon-to-be guest when we have call-in capabilities, uh, guest to the Bitterness and Rage show. So he brought this to my attention, suggested that we talk about this. And I admit, I am a graduate of the Penn State, the Pennsylvania State University, so this is personal significance to me. But I've kind of backed away from the Penn State table lately because I'm not happy with the way they handled the whole Jerry Sandusky scandal and I'm not going to sit here and recount that that's going to take far too long and quite frankly it's old news now but I'm still mad still mad because I don't feel they did enough after Sandusky went to jail and Paterno was fired I don't feel they went far enough I feel like Sandusky went to jail they fired Paterno who then died soon thereafter and they said well we're done we've done everything we have to do we have no more responsibility in this mess so, until the board of trustees and the people truly in charge over at Penn State face some sort of justice, I'm kind of off their bandwagon. But this came to my attention, and I think it bears talking about. Look, Paterno, it, 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 we can all admit, uh, he turned a blind eye, didn't do enough. He's not a child abuser. He's not one of the people that molested or conspired to molest or participate in any way in the heinous crimes of Jerry Sandusky. But going back to the hypocrisy of outrage again, the Paterno firing was not... I'll tell you what the Paterno firing was. It was symbolic of our national outrage at the behavior and attitude of college football coaches at major universities. 
Paterno was someone that a lot of people didn't like because he held himself out there as being a clean coach and ran a clean program, which he did. He absolutely did. But here is a way to bring him down, to cut him down to size so other people in other colleges say, look, you're just like one of us. And the outrage started. You find out that the man didn't do enough. And when you act that way, when you say, well, I would have done more, you should have done more. Really? Is that really true? Can you say that if you were in that situation where a good friend of yours uh, committed a crime, that you would immediately run to the authorities? If you didn't actually witness the crime, it was just all hearsay and all speculation, perhaps? So, again, hypocrisy of outrage. So, after he was fired, one of the things that happened on the campus of Penn State was that the statute, statue of Joe Paterno outside Beaver Stadium, the football stadium, great name for a stadium, by the way, it was removed. It was removed from the state and put in a uh, warehouse or a closet or a storage facility somewhere. Well, now there's a movement to put the statue in State College, the surrounding the town that surrounds the campus of Penn State. And there's, and this is not hypocritical outrage, but there is some outrage by the Survivors Network of abused those abused by priests, SNAP. That's uh, an organization head by someone named Barbara Doris. It's a St. Louis group. So it's not even a Pennsylvania group. They are very unhappy about these plans to put the statue back. Uh, put it up anywhere, whether it's on or off campus. And here are some of the statements they made. And I won't read the whole article, but here are some of the statements. Uh, quote, Paterno was not the most egregious uh, wrongdoer in the Jerry Sandusky horror, but it's clear that at best he should have done more, and at worst he was part of a school bureaucracy that turned a blind eye to suspicions about Sandusky's crime. I have no problem with that, that part of the quote. And, and the fact that there was a school bureaucracy, not a football bureaucracy, and let's not make this a football or a sports crime. This is a school-wide crime. Many members of that bureaucracy are still, are still employed. But I think the... Some of the later quotes, though, start to get into the whole outsized hypocrisy or hypocritical outrage. Although, again, what Doris is saying is not hypocritical. It's our responses, reading this, looking at this, that tend to be hypocritical. Doris argues that initiative will further victimize survivors by showing them that many adults are willing to ignore or minimize their pain and honor a wrongdoer so they can feel good about a football team. A doctor's first job is to do no harm. In child sex cases, that's the job of every caring adult. These alums are in fact doing harm. They should know better. Say what you will about those comments. About how misplaced they are, how over the top they may or may not be. But all that does, all that does is stoke some sort of outrage, even temporarily. And the comments to say that putting up a statue is going to do more harm and then drag the name of Paterno back out so we can kick the corpse a little bit more. It's misplaced. may not be hypocritical, but it's misplaced outrage. Now look, outrage aside, it's too soon. It's too soon for the school or the city to, to bring this whole scandal back into the spotlight again. It's really the last thing Penn State needs. It's the last thing the State College needs. It's the last thing anybody needs. So it's we got to put some more time and distance uh, between what's happened, between the school and the incident, before they can plan to do anything that promotes Joe Paterno 
again. And so it's Penn State, you gotta you gotta slow down a bit. State college, I should say, Penn State, whoever you want to blame it on, you gotta slow down. A little more time, a little more space. All right, let's move on to the Washington Capitol, shall we? Saturday morning massacre. That's what I like to call this little instant. And so now I'm going to treat you like I treat my own students and give you a history lesson from October of 1973. I can hear you snoring out there. I know you're saying, dude, this is a sports show. Not a history show. Whiny, whiny, whiny. Zip it. And that's what I tell my own students. I'm going to make this quick for you. For those who don't know what Watergate is, uh, please, please, on your, go get your computers and Google up Watergate and Nixon. That's your homework tonight. 41 years ago, almost 41 years ago, okay, uh, Richard Nixon wanted to get rid of all the people that were investigating him for the Watergate crimes. And so in what was called the, the Saturday Night Massacre, he fired the special prosecutor, the Watergate special prosecutor, a man named Archibald Cox. Okay, the Attorney General of the United States resigned over those actions. Um, and the Deputy uh, Attorney General was also fired. Basically what happened was Nixon had asked his Attorney General to fire the special prosecutor. And so he quit. The Attorney General, the Assistant Attorney General, the Deputy Attorney General was asked to fire the Special Prosecutor. He refused and he was fired. And then the Special Prosecutor was fired. A lot of firings for a Saturday night. So we've dubbed that the Saturday Night Massacre. Now I bring you the Saturday Morning Massacre. Forty years later, another massacre in Washington. The Washington Capitals fired General Manager George McPhee and Coach Adam Motes. This was a week ago today. The Caps cleaned house. Now what? Now what do they do? Who is to blame in this whole situation? Is it owner Ted Leonsis? Is it team president Dick Patrick? Is it George McPhee? Is that a Motes? Or is it perhaps somebody that we haven't mentioned yet? It's, it's legitimate, I think. There are legitimate reasons to fire both George McPhee and Adam Motes. For years now, the Capitals have had have needed, have had a big need for defensemen. And George McPhee, as general manager, has done very little to draft or to trade for or to sign as free agents legitimate NHL-quality defensemen. Uh, he's been unable to settle on a goalie since the great Olaf Kolzig retired several years ago. He traded this number one draft pick of a couple years ago, a, a great prospect named Philip Forsberg, for Martin Eurat who, from the second he got to Washington, wanted to leave and did not perform for the player he was when he played for Nashville. It was eventually, by the way, traded this past season for, I believe, a stack of hockey pucks. So as a GM, he's done some great things, and he did assemble the core nucleus of that team of Alex Ovechkin, Nicholas Baxter, Mike Green, John Carlson. He did some good things, but he couldn't quite pull the trigger on some moves that were probably necessary. And as for the coach, Adam Oates, if there's anything that you're going to get rid of him for, it's he called out his players in public. He said on one occasion or two occasions that Alex Ovechkin had quit on plays or words to that effect. And when the Capitals played the St. Louis Blues, the goalie they traded for, that got they got from the St. Louis Blues, Yaroslav Halak, he said 
that Halak wasn't playing against his former team because he didn't feel right about playing against his former team or his, did not want to play against his former team, whatever the reason is. You keep that to yourself. Whether it's true or not, you keep that to yourself and you just say, if you're the coach, I've decided to go in a different direction. So it's odd. It's odd, isn't it? There's, in, in 30 years of Washington Capitals history, there's been two general managers. Is it time for a change? Who knows? But that kind of consistency is pretty admirable. And as for the coaches, this would now be the fourth coach in four seasons. Is it time for a change there? Four coaches in four seasons? we got to find someone and stick with them. So at the Saturday morning press conference, Leonsis and Patrick made many references to fresh starts and new beginnings and wanting to turn the page and starting over. But what's the real problem here? What's the one thing that's not being said? The elephant in the room, as it were. It's Alex Ovechkin. It's old number eight. There's no real mention of Ovechkin at the press conference, and when asked, there was mostly ducking without any sort of direct response. Now look, friends, I think Alex Ovechkin is great, but he's a great player. He's a 50-goal scorer, and those don't just fall out of the trees. But you're not going to win a cup with this guy. He suffers from some laziness, some apathy. He's not the exciting throw-his-body-into-checks-and-play-both-ways player he was when he first came up a decade ago, and it's been a decade since he was drafted. So we're not talking about a kid. We're talking about a man who's smack dab in the middle of his prime. If you're really going to start over, Washington, it starts with Alex Ovechkin. 51 goals. That was first in the NHL this year. 51. His plus-minus rating, which teams hold very, very near and dear. They hold that as a very valuable statistic. Okay, How many more goals? The plus-minus rating essentially measures um, goals either that were scored by your team and on your team while you were on the ice. So, of course, you want to have a plus that more goals were scored with you on the ice than were scored against you on the ice. His rating is a negative 35. If you think you can guess where his rating or his plus his negative plus minus rating ranks amongst all NHL players, it's 884th. Now, I'm not the world's biggest hockey expert, but that's pretty bad. 884. I don't even know there are 884 players in the National Hockey League. So it's pretty sad. If you're going to keep him, and I realize he's got this albatross of a contract that pays him a lot of money for a lot of years, it's going to be hard to dump that contract on another team. But you got to take the captain's C off of his sweater. And yes, friends, they call hockey jerseys sweaters. It's just he's not a leader. And he shows at times that, like when the Olympics come around, he's much more concerned about the Olympics. He flames out in the Olympics, can't lead his Russian team to Olympic glory, like he can't lead the Caps to Stanley Cup glory. And then the rest of the season, he just is kind of there. He's got that post-Olympics hangover. So why so many coaches? Why four and four years? Has there been one constant? Yes, it's been Ovechkin. Nobody can work with this guy. It's not a coincidence that nobody can play or nobody can coach him. And they've tried. We've tried offensive coaches, defensive coaches. Who are you going to bring in? Perhaps one thing the Capitals ought to do, and as of this recording of this, they have yet to hire a coach. you got to bring somebody in with Stanley Cup experience. You have to. This is their four coaches in four years, all were first-time coaches. And the first question they're going to ask any new coach or any general manager is, what are you going to do about Ovechkin? What are we going to do about Ovechkin? We, as though I'm going to be in the room making these decisions. What's to be done about him? 
So for the Washington Capitals, before there's any fresh start, before there's any hope for a change, before there's any talk of winning a Stanley Cup, you got to do something about Ovechkin. you got to do something about that anchor around your neck. All right. The NFL schedule. The National. And I wish I professionally could have the Monday Night Football theme playing in the background. So I could say the National. Dun, 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 dun. Football League. On April 23rd, released their schedule. And these days, with Roger Goodell and the rest of the Shield, they like to treat any NFL event like it's a national holiday. And so the schedule comes out a couple weeks ago, and there's hand-wringing and speculation over critical games and who's going to win the Super Bowl. So, my friends, if you could all gather around your radios. Come on, come on, gather around the radio. I'm going to tell you a little secret, okay? You ready? Gather around the radio. Don't tell anybody. It's May. The draft hasn't even occurred yet. There's still going to be free agent signings, cuts, injuries. So it's a little early to for anybody to grab a microphone and, and say, well, here's who's going to win how many games. Here's the playoff scenarios and who's going to win the Super Bowl. And anyone can sit there and with their list, which I have right here, a list of all the upcoming games, and tell you the games that are going to be the best, the most compelling games. So as a public service to all of you, my friends in the listening community, I'm going to give you the least compelling national games. Okay? And there's not that many of them, but there are some doozies that are going to be publicly, publicly, they're all publicly broadcast. That'll be nationally broadcast for your, I guess I'll call it entertainment. So on September 18th, Thursday night, we have the We Finished Tied for Last in Our Division Bowl. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers play the Atlanta Falcons. Folks, both teams stink. Stink out loud. They combined for eight wins last season. Now, this is the chance to see new uh, Tampa Bay coach Lovey Smith and some of the changes he's going to bring to that team. And it's just my opinion as one of the better coaches hey, that we have in the National Football League. And it's good to see him back with a job, by the way. They're not going to be as poo-poo as they were last year, but it's two teams that won, each won four games. And that's on national TV on Thursday night. Thursday night always tends to get the shaft, it seems like. Okay, moving on to November 6th, 825, another Thursday nighter, the Browns at the Bengals. It's the dreaded, the dreaded Battle of Ohio. Yes, the Bengals won 11 games, and they have some decent talent, A.J. Green, uh, Andy Dalton, etc. They do have some decent team, uh, decent players in that team, but folks, the Browns are a dumpster fire with no real proven quarterback. Now, they might by the time this game is played. Now, I guess we'll find out in a few short days when the draft another National Football League holiday. If the NFL could somehow get us to get two days off from work and declare that four-day period a period of rest, three days, might at some point be four days, there's talk of that, as a period of rest and remembrance, they would. Uh, the shield is that powerful. But by the time this game plays, the, the Browns may have drafted Texas A&M's Johnny Manziel. And if they do, which will make the game slightly more compelling, hopefully he wears number two like he wore in college to remind all of us, especially Browns fan, of another immortal first-round quarterback who wore number two, Tim Couch. 
So all I can say is best of luck to you, Erie Warriors. All right, November 13th, the Bills at the Dolphins, another Thursday night poo-poo platter. It's Ryan Tannehill versus E.J. Manuel. Now, this game will be notice will be notable because by the time Week 11 rolls around, Tannehill will probably be benched and E.J. Manuel will probably be injured. The most intriguing part of this matchup would have been uh, seeing Richie Incognito and Jonathan Martin so that we could talk about that mess over and over again, uh, but they'll be long gone, so... It's the Bills and the Dolphins. December 1st, the uh, Dolphins and Jets. Now, in the old days, yes, I'm going to harken back to the good old days of the 80s and 90s. That would be 1980s and 90s, not 1880s and 90s. In the past, this would be a marquee game, a high-scoring playoff positioning type of game that ESPN would be very happy to have. Now it's Tannehill, maybe, uh, who may be on the bench. And uh, Michael Vick will certainly be on, by week 13, will certainly be on injured reserve. So you could be looking at a matchup between Geno Smith and Matt Moore. Eesh. And finally, week 16, December 18th, another Thursday night poo-poo platter. The Titans at Jaguars. Walk away. Close the door. Never look back. And run. Run for your life. The Titans at the Jaguars. How did the Jacksonville Jaguars finagle a nationally televised game? I guess because it's on Thursday night that they found their way to get a Thursday night, a nationally televised game. All right. The last thing. I'm going to promote a new segment on the Bitterness and Rage show. And I realize this is not a weekly show, so sue me, but it's the Dope of the Week. The Bitterness and Rage Show Dope of the Week. And the Dope of the Week award, the inaugural award, goes to Heisman Trophy winning quarterback from Florida State University, Jameis Winston, your national champion, Florida State Seminoles. Jameis Winston, who was caught... I think $32, $32. He was caught stealing, shoplifting $32 worth of crab legs and crawfish. Jamie, Jameis, Bubula, don't you know the NCAA has just said that they're going to make their universities, their partner universities, provide unlimited snacks and meals? Why do you want to steal crab legs? Don't you read the paper? Now, he says... His excuse was he forgot to pay. He forgot to pay at the Publix supermarket where he lifted the crab legs from. How does that happen? How are you walking up and down the aisle, Jameis, getting whatever it is you get, your grape nut cereal, your fruit, your milk, cookies, some Pop-Tarts perhaps, throwing stuff in the cart. Are you eating the crab legs while you're walking up and down the aisles? Now, I know people have been known to grab a candy bar or something else, maybe a cookie from the bakery, and you eat that while you're in the aisles, and okay, maybe I forgot to pay for it, but certainly most people just say, here, will you please scan this disgusting empty candy wrapper? But you forgot to pay? And and how do you how do you walk out of the store with crab legs and crawfish? They're hard to hide. You're hard to hide. You're you're a you're a six foot five 
soon-to-be professional football player. And your face is everywhere. You're the face of the national champion, so you're going to get noticed. How do you hide them? Do you wear them as a hat? Do you put them in your pockets? Maybe, just maybe, you're like Larry Kroger, Pinto from the great movie Animal House, played by the wonderful actor Tom Hulse. When he walks out of the supermarket with all these groceries stuffed under his sweater, and he says, nothing for me today, thanks, as he tries to walk out past the checkout girl. Maybe you shoved them all down your pants and down your shirt and in your shoes and in your pockets and just kind of sauntered out. I don't get it. How do you forget to pay? In a statement that he released, here's the statement, by the way. He says, I went to the supermarket with the intent to purchase dinner but made a terrible mistake for which I'm taking full responsibility. In a moment of youthful ignorance, I walked out of the store without paying for one of my items. I realized that I am in the public spotlight and my conduct needs to be above reproach. Over the last year, I've learned that my accomplishments on the fields can be a wonderful thing for my school, teammates, friends, and family. At the same time, I must realize that my mistakes are magnified and can bring great embarrassment to those who support me every day. It's a wonderful statement. Please raise your hands out there if you believe that Jameis Winston either meant that or, God help us all, actually wrote it. Come on. Let's see you. Raise your hands. Raise your hands. Anyone? Anyone? Just a bunch of crickets chirping? I think the moral of the story is this. And this is something, you know, my beloved late grandmother always talked about. And Jameis, regardless of who you are, where you're from, this is why it's so wrong to eat crab legs. And not just because they're kosher. Well, it is because they're, they're not kosher. Okay? So, if you've learned nothing, Jameis, this is why, as my grandmother has always warned us, it's important to keep kosher. All right, my friends, thanks for hanging in there. Well, we had a really long show today, chock full of goodness, chock full of moral ambiguities and life lessons and stories about dietary restrictions. I hope you'll join me again real soon, hopefully in a, another couple weeks. Remember, I'd like this show to be our show. So find me on my Twitter machine, at Bitter and Rage, at Bitter and Rage, let me know what you're thinking. Criticisms, comments, complaints, hopes, dreams, concerns. I want to thank you all again for listening, for hanging in there. I hope to see you again real soon. Remember, as always, that the Bitterness and Rage show is a Miyasoti Cologne production. And good night, everybody. Mm -hmm.